Thank you, Brian and Rebecca. Well, when I was a kid, I had a very strong sense of fairness. So whenever my uh, parents did something for my brother, well, it had to be fair for me. Whenever we played a game, it had to be fair and uh, you had to particularly play by the rules. If uh, someone did something wrong, then no, they really had to be punished. Fairness was deeply held as a value when I was younger. And this particularly came out uh, during times when we'd play mini-golf. So on reflection, uh, there are two ways of playing mini-golf. One aim, one, one way of playing is to aim to have fun. And so you have a go, you don't keep score, and you try and get the ball in the hole however, however, you, however you like. The other way of playing mini-golf is to play by the rules. And so you always wait for the ball to stop before you take the next uh, next shot. Uh, you need to take a penalty if your ball goes out of bounds. And uh, you made sure you count every single stroke along the way. Uh, you can imagine which way I played mini-golf. And it always had to be fair. It was, you know, you had to count every single stroke. Drove my, ne- my relatives nuts who just wanted to have fun when they played mini-golf. Uh, but that was kind of one of the values that I deeply held. Now, as, as happens later in life, my steely determination to make sure everything is fair has faded a little. So, you know, having, uh, having the kids win at things instead of me was, was a novel concept which I had to learn. <laughs> or uh, priorities change, so now avoiding a meltdown, uh, just uh, instead of, you know, strictly enforcing all the monopoly rules, that can be uh, more important these days. But I've still got that sense of fairness somewhere deep inside me. Things should be fair. And so when I get to a passage like this that uh, that Brian read for us, all I can think about is how unfair it is. Nothing in this passage is fair for Jesus. At no point does justice prevail for Jesus. And so when I'm reading this again, I kept wanting to say, Jesus, you know you realize that you're God here. You could, uh, you could do something. Or at least, uh, you could say something to point out how blatantly unfair this all is. You know, if I was in Jesus' shoes, I'm really glad I wasn't on this day. Firstly, I'd be terrified of the outcome. I wouldn't want to be found guilty here. But also, I just have that inner turmoil of, this is just so unfair. But it is in Jesus' acceptance of all the unfair things that happened on this day that means that we can receive salvation. And so I think we should look through and see why Jesus would let this unfairness Go forward. And we'll need God's help as we turn to his word, so let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word so that we can know you through Jesus. But please give us wisdom to see through all that is going on and all the unfairness that Jesus experiences, how this shows your love for us. So be with us today as we turn to your word. Amen. So today uh, is Palm Sunday, uh, the Sunday before Easter, where we uh, Palm Sunday celebrates Jesus' 
triumphal entry into Jerusalem with palm branches waving along the way. Uh, we saw that a couple of weeks ago in our series in Mark. Jesus has entered Jerusalem as a king riding on the colt of a donkey, a little glimpse of his full identity as ruler and maker of the world. And yet ever since his arrival at Jerusalem, he's been met with questioning and accusation and opposition. But then a breakthrough for the opposition. Judas, one of his disciples, was willing to betray Jesus, to hand him over to them for 30 pieces of silver. And last week we saw that betrayal. And so Jesus has been arrested. And to cap it all off, his followers have fled. Now, I've never been arrested uh, never been taken away by the police, so I have no idea what that has must have been like for Jesus. But this wasn't the police at this point. This was a hired armed mob working for the for the chief priests of all people, for the the religious uh, hierarchy of of the day. And uh, Jesus has been taken away not to prison, but to a meeting of the Sanhedrin to the Jewish ruling council. And so that's made up of the chief priests, so, you know, the, the priestly families, uh, other elders of the community and teachers of the law. So all the religious heavyweights are part of this uh, this Sanhedrin uh, group. And uh, and so let's have a look. Let's turn to the word. Uh, grab your Bible again. Mark 14. Let's go back to verse 55. <coughs> Just look for all the unfair things as we go through it again. Verse 55, the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him, We heard him say, I'll destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days we'll build another not made with human, with hands. Yet even then, their testimony did not agree. It's just so obviously unfair. These religious leaders, they just, they had it in for him. They were trying to find uh, a way to convict him. They were so threatened by his, by Jesus' teaching and his followers and who he was claiming to be, that they were willing to do anything to find evidence against Jesus. But there was none. There was none. And even any attempted uh, testimony didn't agree with one another. It's so obviously unfair. And so what does Jesus do? Well, nothing. He says nothing. Uh, this week, Donald Trump has been indicted for business fraud. I could be wrong, but my hunch is when he's on trial, he won't be staying silent. (laughs) He will do all that he can to defend himself. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus is on trial. And Jesus, you know this is all false. Why don't you defend yourself? Or maybe he's letting them dig a deeper hole for themselves. Or maybe he's fulfilling a particular role that was foreseen in the Old Testament. 
the role of suffering servant, the servant of the Lord who will bring salvation. We read about it, read about him in the first reading. Here's a little bit uh, from Isaiah. He, the suffering servant, was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Jesus is fitting this role well. And so all the, after all the testimony, after all the accusations have been given, uh, it's obvious that there's no charge that can be brought against him. The high priests, the high priest says something to him, just puts it all out on the table. The high priest asks him, verse 61, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? And that's kind of the most exalted figure you could imagine. You know, the Messiah, God's anointed king in the line of David, son of the blessed one, son of God himself. Anyone to claim this for themselves is committing blasphemy. That is, how could you, a mere human, claim so much for yourself in relation to God? But at this point, Jesus does open his mouth. Jesus says, I am. I am. And so just as, remember God called himself, I am, when he met Moses at the burning bush? Jesus is using that same phrase for his answer, I am. Jesus is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then he says, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. This is bringing up another Old Testament uh, prophecy of the one who comes uh, as God's servant to bring salvation. This is from the book of Daniel. It says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, God, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All the nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Jesus is saying, I am this king. I am God's appointment to rule the nations forever. No one would dare claim that for themselves. But Jesus did. And unless it's true, it's blasphemy. Declaring yourself to be God and his anointed king is an offense to God himself. Well, for the Sanhedrin, they had heard enough at this point. That's what they needed. In their eyes, Jesus is worthy of death for blasphemy. But as we read it now, it's so unfair because Jesus is speaking the truth. In all that Jesus has done in uh, with his time on earth, his miracles, his love that he's shown for others, his teaching, all this points to who Jesus really is. But Jesus admitting this is enough for them to seek death. To seek death. Uh, but uh, firstly, look at the thuggery, just blatant thuggery 
Remember, this is the religious leaders of the day. And yet, have a look at verse 65. Some, uh, then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists and said, prophesy. This is before the guards get hold of him and beat him. The Sanhedrin gets to him physically. Jesus has done nothing wrong, nothing deserving of this, and yet this is how he is treated. It's just all so unfair. But as the story unfolds, the Sanhedrin, they don't have the authority to put anyone to death. That's got to be a a state thing. Only the Romans can do that. And so they take Jesus to Pilate, uh, the Roman governor of the province. And uh, again, Jesus says very little, despite all the accusations. But then, uh, have a look at, uh, we're in chapter 15 now. Have a look down at verse 6. Now, it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man named Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. So firstly, this is a very, this is, for me, this is a weird Passover tradition. I don't know where it came from. It's just, you know, let's release a dangerous criminal once a year. And, uh, Barabbas, who's nominated, he is a dangerous criminal. He is a murderous political terrorist. And, uh, but that was, that was the custom, so sure. And, uh, Pilate gives the crowd a choice. Uh, release Jesus or release Barabbas. He's expecting them to say Jesus because they could, he could see through all the false claims about him. But the crowd cries, Barabbas! Uh, then this, the next verse, um, gives me chills. Over to verse 15. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Pilate handed Jesus over to be crucified to satisfy the crowd? You know, this was a man's life, but he was willing to sacrifice him for the sake of his own protection in his position? He was so afraid of the mob that he sent an innocent man to die. Not just any innocent man, innocent man to die, but still an innocent man to die. I get chills from that because A, it's so unfair, it's so unjust. But I also wonder what I would have done in that situation as well. Both is chilling. It's all just so unfair. And so what is God saying to us through all this injustice? I think the first thing that God is saying to us today is that the Christian walk is lined with injustice. If we are followers of Jesus, we follow a man who suffered gross injustice. Jesus experienced all this unfairness and it ultimately cost him his life. And so as we follow him, if he is our Lord then we should not expect life to be fair for us. 
but we too may experience injustice in this life. Uh, and I think that's why, you know, the belief of karma, that what goes around comes around, Good, do a good deed and something good will happen to you, do something bad and then something bad will happen to you. That can be such an attractive thing to believe. So you might see the odd viral video of a, you know, a man angry and so he tries to kick a dog and he slips over and falls and you go, ah, instant karma. We like to think that that is how the world would work because then there would be ultimate justice. But looking at our world, there's far too much injustice for karma to be taken seriously as a belief. But instead, for the Christian, the example of Jesus shows us that God's people will experience injustice in this life. Jesus himself said to his disciples in John 15, Remember what I told you, a servant is no greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. And so that may be our experience, brothers and sisters. We might be treated unfairly, just in general, but also because of our faith. It's happening in workplaces all the time at the moment. We might be treated unfairly because of what we believe, uh, even if it's got nothing to do with how we work. Or it might be uh, amongst our wider family members. We might be untreated fairly or thought of badly because of our faith. But of course, there are Christians around the world that experience terrible injustice, much more than you and I will probably ever face. Uh, If you read the church newsletter a couple of weeks ago, you would have read about what Christians are facing in the East African nation of Eritrea, Uh, Let me read it to you. For 20 years, Eritrea has only recognised three official Christian denominations and closely monitor these churches. The authorities perpetuate a stigma against believers and encourage neighbours to spy on and report each other. Those who have become Christian from a Muslim background or who leave the Orthodox Church for a non-traditional church face extreme pressure and persecution from their own families and communities. There are thought to be a thousand Christians indefinitely detained in Eritrean prisons, not officially charged with anything. It's just so unfair, so awful. Uh, To my shame, I care far too little about this injustice of our brothers and sisters So I was so glad that at the prayer meeting this morning before church, we could pray for uh, our brothers and sisters like this, facing gross injustice just like Jesus did. But that is the way. The Christian walk is lined with injustice. So let us be a people who pray for the persecuted church. But whether it's for the small injustices in our lives or the big ones in, of uh, believers around the world, how can we deal with them? How can we face them? How can we reconcile that when we want fairness? Well, of course, there's nothing stopping us seeking justice in our world. So if there's a way to help our brothers and sisters overseas or if there's 
in our local situation, if there's legal action we can take or if, uh, or if we can inform the boss or the HR department what's going on, then we're free to pursue justice and fairness. That is a good thing to do. But when there is no justice, when it's not fair, we have a way of enduring it. For the Lord Jesus has faced it himself. And so he gets it. He understands. We can entrust ourselves to him for he is with us. And we can entrust ourselves to God knowing that justice will come on the last day because God sees all. He knows not just what people do but the motivations inside them. And he will bring justice to all. We can follow example, the example of Jesus. As Peter writes, when they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. The second thing that God is saying to us today comes back to my question earlier of why didn't Jesus do something? Why didn't he stand up for what was right and what was true? Why didn't he demand justice? Well, not only is a walk of a Christian a walk of injustice, but Jesus faced ultimate injustice so that you and I can receive surprising mercy. I wonder how Barabbas was feeling that night. He was a guilty man, but he was set free and in his place stood the innocent one. Because unless Jesus is condemned, Barabbas doesn't go free. In these God-ordained events, we get a glimpse into what Jesus' death achieved for us. So we are in the shoes of Barabbas. Maybe not to the extent of murder, but we have all sinned against God. We're guilty before him in our failure to worship him as God, in our failure to depend on him in prayer, our failure to give thanks for all he's blessed us with, our failure to obey the commands uh, to love, or like Peter, uh, to disown him, to disown Jesus at the first sign of pressure. Or maybe that's just me this week. But if that is us, for God to be fair, sin must be justly punished. God just can't let sin go. That wouldn't be fair. That wouldn't be just. Justice wouldn't come. But then there's Jesus who was totally innocent. He did nothing wrong. But more than that, he was totally pure and holy. He did everything right. There was nothing in him that deserves just punishment from God the Father. But what that means is, he is the perfect substitute for us. Because he deserves no punishment himself. He, as God, can willingly take on that just punishment 
He can stand under the wrath of God as he does on the cross so that we, the guilty, the sinful, can walk free and walk free with God himself. This is how God can be completely fair by forgiving us. God acts in complete justice even as he lets the sinner free. For Jesus takes the punishment we deserve. Uh, John Stott, uh, English theologian, explains it well. How then could God express simultaneously his holiness in judgment and his love in pardon? Only by providing a divine substitute for the sinner so that the substitute would receive the judgment and the sinner the pardon. We sinners still, of course, have to suffer some of the personal, psychological and social consequences of our sins. But the penal consequence, the deserved penalty of alienation from God, has been borne by another in our place so that we may be spared it. It can only be fair to God to pardon and forgive sin if there is a worthy substitute to bear judgment instead of us. So even though I might recoil at the unfairness of this passage, of all the injustice that Jesus experienced, I need to remember, firstly, how much more must God hate the injustice? Imagine God going through this. If I recall at these events, how much more must God have been offended by all the injustice. But I also need to remember that he faced all unfairness for me. He led, he let the unfair process and the unjust outcome happen because by these ordained events, he shows that he loves me and he loves you because if Jesus faces injustice, we can receive surprising mercy. And so may we have, may we rejoice and follow and give thanks to our worthy substitute, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Hallelujah. What a saviour.